Hello, I'm David Park, and this is Beyond the Script. This podcast is for decision makers looking to grow their company. Through our conversations with current game changers, we learn their insights, stories, and tactics that we can use to grow today. Welcome to Beyond the Script. We have Zoe Kwok from Calm Clarity. How are you? Hi, I'm well. How are you? I'm good. So talk to us about your company and your role. Sure. My company is called Calm Clarity. It's a social enterprise that uses neuroscience and mindfulness to address complex social issues such as addressing unconscious bias, building inclusion, advocating towards solving socioeconomic inequality. We also help people who are dealing with adversity to overcome trauma and to transform their experiences so they can own their narrative. Okay. So tell us about your journey to this point. How did you end up here? So it was a long path. I grew up in inner city Philadelphia and had no idea how much uh, trauma I had witnessed and experienced in my life, but I was academically gifted, so I got into Harvard College. And while I was there, the culture shock and the feeling of social alienation led me to experience symptoms of depression, anxiety, um, trauma, like PTSD, and I decided to seek help. And when I talked to a psychiatrist, they explained that the trauma that I experienced as a young child may be the reason why I was experiencing all these symptoms. So that led me to learn more about the brain, and they had prescribed things like antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, and also explained what that um, what they would do on the brain. So mm-hmm. I was completely fascinated as I paid attention to changes in my experience and decided to go read more about the brain. And so that's when I say I became a mind hacker. And since then, like I managed to change the symptoms by rewiring my brain and addressing a lot of the mental patterns that were leading to these downward spirals and learn how to manage the panic attacks that I was experiencing so I don't have panic attacks anymore. I still have an anxiety-prone brain, but I no longer have panic attacks because I've learned to recognize the spiral and stop it. And in addition, after I graduated from Harvard, I was a first-generation college student, and I didn't have any mentors or role models. I had no idea what was supposed to happen after college, never understood the recruiting cycles, and so I graduated unemployed without a job. And I was lucky my um, friends actually vouched for me and helped me get into a consulting firm. After graduation, I recruited off-cycle and received an offer at Monitor. And there I dove into management strategy and got to travel to Europe. And where else did I travel? I can't remember, but it was a lot of fun. Mm. And then everyone went to business school. So I got into Wharton and wrote about how one day I wanted to start a nonprofit or a way of helping students growing up in inner cities, experiencing the struggles that I went through to build life skills and develop leadership and resilience. But I didn't quite know how to do that when I graduated from Wharton. And so I went back into management consulting, got my firm to send me to Asia. So I was based out of the greater China practice in Beijing and then was recruited to run a private equity team in Vietnam, where I was born. And from there, got into growth capital, social impact investments in Singapore. And at some point, I realized I could probably make a bigger impact on the world as a social entrepreneur than as an investor and began to learn from or, or synthesize what I had learned from all those years of doing investments and wanted to then do some soul searching, think about what I would build as a social entrepreneur, what would my social enterprise look like. 
And so I took a year off to travel Asia. So I lived there for a while, working very intensely, and didn't really get a chance to enjoy it. And I decided to focus on learning meditation because my ancestry is Buddhist, but mm. I understood nothing about Buddhism or the Buddhist teachings. And so I decided to go to India, do the Buddhist pilgrimage trail where the Buddha lived, sit into uh, do meditation retreats at different centers. And after about almost three months of meditating and, and traveling to understand these teachings in India, I realized I had a different brain. <laughs> my brain has completely rewired itself in a way that I experienced a lot more inner peace and calmness and compassion. And all those years of management consulting and private equity, I was not the nicest person, right? I was a shark. And somehow a lot of the things that I had kind of compensated for or or hadn't addressed in my career, I just covered over because I didn't want to share that I grew up in inner city Philadelphia. I didn't want to share about growing up in poverty. But during that three months in which I wandered to learn meditation and, and really come to a deeper understanding of my purpose in life, I realized that meditation was part of the journey because I was looking at all these different practices from the lens of neuroscience. And I'd been a brain geek since college and looking at how meditation changed my brain and the effect of neuroplasticity, how I was using my brain slightly differently than I did before, it was fascinating. And then when I came back to Philadelphia after living in Asia for seven years, I saw that the public school system was imploding. There was a crisis where they had laid off mm. all the school counselors, not all, but most of the school counselors, the school nurses. There was a crisis in which they had a shortfall of maybe $300 million. And so anyone who wasn't an essential teaching staff was laid off. Vice principals were laid off. And it really motivated me to think through, like, how could what I had learned be synthesized in a way to help students who were dealing with these challenges to find their path. And so I began bootstrapping this Calm Clarity curriculum in inner city high schools. We started with a focus group at Carver, and then some of the students advocated to bring a pilot to Masterman. So we were able to run two full pilots in, at Masterman. And then we were able to work with Penn's Netter Center for Community Partnerships to run the program for high school students in West Philadelphia during the summer. How did you get connected with these guys? Luck. Luck. I would say when I came back to Philadelphia, I had like a very, very small network. Okay. All my high school friends had graduated and left. Like I didn't stay in touch with them. Most of my college friends weren't in Philadelphia. And I didn't really work in Philadelphia. My Wharton colleagues or classmates had left Philadelphia too. So I had like a small number of people to mm. like connect with who weren't in Philadelphia, but new people in Philadelphia, they began to make introductions. And slowly, one of the people I was connected to knew um, the founder of Startup Core, which is now School Your Adventures. And he was teaching kids, high school kids, entrepreneurship. And so it was through piggybacking on their group that we got the first focus group set up at Carver. So it was his relationship with the Carver principal that allowed that to happen, right? And then I went to some event where I met someone who had interned at the Netter Center and she made an introduction and that led to a partnership with the director of Sayer High School um, who ran the Summer Bridge program. And then through another connection with the director of the Cabrini Mission Corps, we got connected to Cabrini University in the fall of 2014, we ran our first 
pilot with first-generation college students from low-income backgrounds at Cabrini University. When was that? The fall of 2014. Okay. And that was when we were finally set up to do pre- and post-assessments and okay. collect data. And so the data afterwards, like I had managed to connect with a professor at the Penn Graduate School of Education because she wanted me to speak to her class. And one of the students in the class was a researcher who understood how to do pre- and post instrument evaluations. So she helped me to actually analyze the data and show that the before and after differences were actually statistically significant. Like, uh, could you tell me a little bit more about the data? Like, Yeah, so we were able to run a small pilot of just uh, 15 students, the majority who were first-generation college students, and we had connected with the positive psychology lab at Penn. I connected with Martin Seligman to try to understand what instruments should I use to do these assessments, and he had recommended using what he called the PERMA profiler. It's a scale that they developed to measure well-being. And in addition, the student and I also picked the brief resilience scale and the general self-efficacy scale. And then I made up my own stress assessment questionnaire because I wanted to understand the effects of toxic stress on the students, and there was no scale that really related to the type of stress that that people in low-income situations have to experience, right? And so what we saw were that along the positive dimensions of resilience, self-efficacy, positive emotions, the experience of meaning and purpose, there were statistically significant changes, double-digit changes, right? And then we saw that on the things that we wanted to see go down, like their peak stress levels, the frequency of experiencing toxic stress, uh, negative emotions, and in particular loneliness, there were also double digits decreases in those in those dimensions. And how long is that workshop? So that particular pilot we ran over two weekends. Two weekends. So Saturday, Sunday, Saturday and Sunday. Okay. It was a pretty intense experience and but these these changes we saw like we did the uh, workshop, the weekend workshops, like mid-semester, and the students had come to school and were adjusting to college, and then we we ran the post-assessments, like around finals period. So even though it was finals, their stress levels actually decreased wow. because they were using these tools. Wow. And what are some of the tools that you introduced them to? Sure. So the main thing we taught was a framework for understanding their brain. Mm-hmm. So uh, we call it the Calm Clarity emotional states of the brain framework where we help them understand that um, everyone has three um, patterns of brain activation, these three archetypal patterns that we all fluctuate between. Is that the brain 3.0? Yes. And so so we explain how in brain 1.0, it's your freeze-fight-fight system Mm. that gets activated. You go into a state of stress, high arousal. And you, you're, you may want to say no to things. You may want to shut down. You may want to um, smash things or withdraw like Godzilla. Okay. So I call it the inner Godzilla mode. Okay. Right? The voice in your head sounds like an inner Godzilla. You can be very angry. You can escalate conflict. Or you can just shut down, withdraw completely socially and isolate yourself. Okay. Um, and the next state, brain 2.0, is when you're re- reward system, your dopamine system is activated. So you're chasing things. Mm-hmm. Most of the time what you're chasing is external validation. Things like social status, coolness, wealth, money, um, incentives, rewards, praise, recognition. Sometimes you're chasing immediate gratification. So for instance, people who 
if they're feeling unhappy about some area of their life, then they go do retail therapy mm-hmm. or they do comfort eating or they go drink beer or whatever it is, right, to escape from the negative. And so we teach them to look out for those behaviors. And so they can see themselves as like biofeedback mechanisms and assess when they're in brain 1.0 or brain 2.0. The problem with of being in brain 1.0 and 2.0 is that it impairs the higher level areas of the brain that I call brain 3.0. It's your prefrontal cortex, the areas for executive functioning. So when you're in brain 2.0, the voice in your head is like an inner teen wolf, where you're just chasing like uh, the Michael J. Fox character in Teen Wolf. Yeah. You just want to be the most popular guy in school, date the most popular girl. Basically, you don't really care about your moral values, whether you're doing the right thing. It's, the important thing is that people want you to be you and want to hang out with you, right? But that type of happiness is very superficial. And a lot of times when you get what society tells you you should have to be happy, the enjoyment of happiness is very short-lived, mm-hmm. right? And then your dopamine networks dis- get sensitized to, desensitized to it. And then you feel empty. A sense of fear of missing out causes you to chase something else. So that's not real happiness. It generates the pursuit of happiness, but not actual happiness. To experience genuine happiness and fulfillment, you actually have to activate brain 3.0. And when you're in Brain 3.0, you have access to an inner voice I call the inner sage. It's like your inner compass, a coach that guides you, helps you see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. You connect to your wisdom. You can make a positive impact on other people. And so when people meditate, they can actually activate what I call the neural networks of the inner sage. And you can start to detach from the inner Godzilla or what the inner team wolf says to you. Mm-hmm. And to start to recognize when you're in Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0, that's brain 3.0 that's recognizing it. So you're developing something called metacognition, the ability to look at your thoughts in a detached manner without being completely entangled and swept away by them. Mm. And so as the students learn to identify these different brain states, right, then they can use tools to further activate brain 3.0. What are some of those tools? So there's a few things that I teach that's very easy. One is to use deep breathing. So if you do slow deep breathing and i call it a six three six three breathing cycle where you inhale for six seconds you hold for three seconds you exhale for six seconds hold for three seconds do that for a few minutes and what you're actually doing is activating your vagus nerve and you're turning up your parasympathetic system and your parasympathetic system is then deactivating your sympathetic system right so you're taking yourself out of the stress response and as you do that you increase the amount of blood that flows to your brain so then you can see more clearly oh, and like if you a, just act it out your impulse. Okay, like a yeah. physical physical component to it, not just meditating. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, they call it pranayama in the yoga tradition where okay. you do a lot of breathing exercises. Ah. But these breathing exercises are changing your nervous system. They're shifting you into a parasympathetic state so you can be calmer as you see the world. Right, because you can't be in brain 3.0 if there's not enough blood flow going to your prefrontal cortex. I never thought about that. Okay. Yeah. So if you're in a highly stressed situation, the blood has already left it. Oh, you wow. Know? And it's in your limbs, it's in your legs to fight or flight. And that's why people experience brain fog, um, brain fog when they're super stressed. And, and people may find it very hard to sleep as well because there's so much stress hormones in their body. So that breathing exercise... How how long should it be in terms of amount of minutes? I would say at least three times mm. if you can. 
to see any effect. If you just do it one time, it might not be enough. Mm. So you need to do at least three cycles, mm. which makes it about like a minute. Okay. And if you can, to do it like between two to five minutes could yeah. help. And then if you want to get really deep into pranayama, there are many different types of breathing. Okay. But I don't want to get people confused, right? Yeah. So if you just say 6363 is your go-to pattern mm. and just use it. A second thing that people can do is, I call it um, watching your monkey mind. Yes. Yeah. Our default mode network in the brain is the part of the brain that's never, never shuts down. It's the storytelling brain, right? It's always trying to predict what's about to happen. And so scientists discovered it because they realized like the brain is conscious, uh, constantly using up calories and they don't know what it does when it's not doing any particular task. Well, it's telling stories. Oh. Right? It, it's helping you predict what's about to happen in your world. You're either thinking through your checklist, you're thinking through what you should say to your boss or your client, you're thinking through what to say to your kids, you're thinking through what to make for dinner, what to do next weekend, when you're going to go holiday, mm. right? You're processing a narrative, you're making coherent sense of your life, right? You're, you're, or you're ruminating on the past. So some people beat themselves up over and over again in their head. And so this part of the brain is actually a big part of the social brain. Okay. It allows us to navigate social worlds, complex social relationships, right, in society. And this part of the brain can get overactive. And so when people have, like, a racing mind, mm. that's the default mode network, and it's just racing at high speeds. And we all have something called the associative activation cascade. So when you um, think about something your mind jumps to all the different networks that are associated with that thought so if i say beer you might think about your favorite beer yeah or when you're gonna have another beer or like who you like having beer with or whatever the mind just keeps jumping right okay so that that cascade can take over and people can't focus they can't concentrate right they so just like dream on it just keeps it takes over and they might be in a state of trance right where mm. you don't even hear what's happening in the room because your mind is off wherever your default mode network is okay and so what we tell people is to watch the default mode network right so and then what you can classify like what is the default mode network thinking about so you can say it's planning you can say it's thinking about food it's thinking about beer but just naming what it's doing it's called metacognition okay just recognizing these are the patterns of my brain so in T Tibetan Buddhism, the word for meditation is gom, just means being familiar with your mind. So it's not about making your mind different from what it is. It's about understanding the patterns of your mind, namely the pattern of your default mode network, how, how it tends to react when you're stressed, how it tends to react when you're in certain situations, what certain types of triggers or priming does to your default mode network, right? Mm -hmm. You can't control what fired and wired together your brain. You can't control how things got associated together, but you don't have to believe the stories that go on and on and on. Okay. You can just say, my mind is making a story, right? So as long as you can understand the patterns of your brain, uh. you can start to watch it like an inner movie or inner reality TV show. Okay. And you can say, based on those thoughts, I can assess that maybe I'm in brain 1.0 right now the voice in my head <laughs> these thoughts right. are angry okay you know, you're pissed off you're using curse words right whatever it is or it might have an ocd type of energy where you're trying to find the best version of this or the best version of that right so for instance like when i'm shopping mm. like i want the best sneakers or i want the best hiking poles i'll end up reading 20 reviews trying to get the best deal like that's brain 2.0 this idea that there can be the best mm. of something and how much energy are you putting out and does it 
matter anymore, right? So I have a maximizing tendency. Okay. I want to get the best of things. And I just go, oh, that's the maximizer trying to do this. I think this trekking pole is probably good enough. I'm just going to buy it instead of spending another three hours researching trekking right. poles, right? And so overachievers have this maximizing tendency, okay. right? And you can get into OCD about having things particularly this way or that way and realizing that the incremental benefits of it is actually minimal. Okay. And I just stop myself when I start doing things like that. So when you stop yourself, do you have a story that you tell yourself when you stop yourself or how do you stop yourself? Well, sometimes I say this is good enough, right? Okay. <laughs> right. Like another hour or two spent doing this isn't yeah. going to make it much better. So okay. I say this is good enough. You can stop here. You know, okay. I just give myself permission and be like, relax. You don't have to find any more deals. This is good enough. Okay. Right? Other people may have to say something different to their default mode network. Got it. To say, hey, you've done your job. I'm happy with what I've got. Right. Let's do something different now. Okay. Right? Like, your job is done. And and then when people are in Brain 3.0, mm-hmm. the default mode network is relaxed. Okay. It's present. Like, it's connecting to the person you're with. Right. So you can gauge it and say, hey, I don't have any stories in my head right now, right? I'm actually able to tune into this person, see them as a human being. I'm not judging or nitpicking or anything. Like I might actually be in brain 3.0, okay. right? Especially when you're appreciative and grateful and thankful for what's happening. Okay. And you're learning and you, you have a sense of curiosity and wonder, like that's brain 3.0. Ah. And so we're actually much more effective in terms of learning, growth, development, in terms of personal interpersonal interactions when we're in brain 3.0 i see and so so that's one exercise is Mm -hmm. to check in on your monkey mind okay and see like what part of the brain it's in and again if it's very much in brain 1.0 or brain 2.0 sometimes you have to take time to bring it to the present moment Mm -hmm. and so another exercise is it's called sensory awareness Mm -hmm. so for instance we have three systems that allow us to that make up the sensory awareness system one system is called the exteroceptive network so it's your five senses sight sound touch smell taste and so there's like mindfulness exercises where you just feel like something in your hand right and you you're present with what that feels like or you feel your body in your chair your feet on the ground you just try to tune into what that sense of touch and gravity feels like when you do a mindful hearing exercise and you try to hear very subtle sounds in your environment, like this background fan, mm-hmm. right? Or you do mindful seeing exercise and you look at two things that you haven't taken something, you haven't, haven't taken time to look at very carefully to see how they're different. So does that just flare up different parts of your brain and that helps? With yeah, so it, it flares up the present awareness okay. network. It, and what that does is it actually quiets your default mode network. Because mm. you're doing something that's mindful, you're paying attention to something in the present moment, and you're not listening to the stories in your head. You're actually carefully, like for instance, you could compare two apples or two bananas and look at the patterns and be like, oh, they're not exactly the same, right? So that's like a very quiet activity, but it, it quiets the default mode network, you know? And then there's, if you don't have anything else to look at, you can activate the interoceptive awareness system where you tune into your body. What does it feel like to be in your body? What are your energy levels? How what tune into your heartbeat? You tune into what the pulse feels like in your body. And by doing that check-in, yeah. like this type of body scan, 
can also quiet your default mode network. So that's how all these mindfulness exercises work, is they're activating one of these three networks. Oh, the third network is the proprioceptive awareness network. You're tracking your movements in space. So for instance, if you take your two fingers, like yeah. your two index fingers, and you bring them together really fast, okay. you might miss each other, right? Mm -hmm. But if you do it slowly, they can touch. Okay. The proprioceptive system allows you to fine-tune your two fingers so they exactly touch each other. Okay. Right? So athletes, for instance, gymnasts who have to, like, do all these incredible things on, like, a balance beam, <laughs> they have a really great proprioceptive network because they're very precise movements when they can't see them. Okay. Right? Like, if you try to touch your fingers behind your back, it's a lot harder because you're not used to that. But gymnasts are flipping over and doing somersaults in the air and landing on the balance beam, right? right? So that's a very strong proprioceptive system. With football, to be at the right place to catch the football at the right time, that's also very strong proprioceptive awareness. But with yoga, tai chi, qigong, all of that is strengthening your proprioceptive system. When people do mindful walking, when they do um, mindful movement exercises, all of that is fine-tuning proprioception and increasing your balance, your ability to tell like where your body is in space. Okay. So I know you mentioned that going to India and doing some three-month research there or being in India for three months and studying up on meditation and everything. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Like, was there a certain breakthroughs that you made in that, in those sessions? Uh, yeah. So basically what I explained to you, mm. these insights came to me when I was on these long retreats in India. And so there was one particular retreat. It's called a Vipassana retreat. It's under the SM Cuenca umbrella organization. And it's a completely silent, like, ten-and-a-half-day retreat. So you go in there, and you have to make a commitment not to read, not to write, not to talk to people, to have a vow of silence. And all you do for, like, almost 10, 11 days, 10 and 11 hours per day is meditate. And then even during the breaks, you do mindful walking, but you're supposed to be quiet. You're not supposed to do anything. Very exciting. Mm. And you're not supposed to be interacting or talking to any of the other participants. And I remember during that time, all you do is, like, wrestle with your monkey mind, right? Because there's nothing else to pay attention to. There's no TV. There's no Internet. There's no connection to your phone. There's nothing, right? It's just you and your mind mm. and your body. And it kind of sucks to just sit for like 11 hours a day yeah you know and your mind's just going crazy like, yeah like being like how do i get out of this or whatever it is and i remember watching my mind go between brain 1.0 brain 2.0 and brain 3.0 constantly throughout the day right throughout the night even and and that's when you know I at first realized that I was three different people, mm. right? These three different types of personas that I had an inner Godzilla that would get angry or just want to get the hell out of a place. I had an inner teen wolf that wanted to maximize. Like I was always like at the front of the line for food. Okay. Like I always like optimized like my path to do this thing or that thing or had my bed a certain way, mm. you know? And I was like, why does it even matter? Nobody cares. But in my mind, it mattered, okay. right? And then in Brain 3.0, it was able to just let go of the stories. And just be in the present moment and enjoy how beautiful the scenery was on this mountaintop in Dharamsala and just really appreciate this opportunity that was given to me to um, learn about this tradition from my ancestors that I had no connection to when I was growing up in the U.S. So were they explaining this 
this framework to you or no they use the traditional buddhist approach to teaching meditation so i think it was my own like i would call it the inner sage Mm. my own um, inner wisdom Mm. and my knowledge of neuroscience that allowed me to see these categories to see my brain moving between these three patterns Mm. notice it and then um, learn to let go of all the stories that i had in brain 1.0 and brain 2.0 and be able to connect it to like the teachings of the Buddha as um, they play these videotapes of Goenka giving lectures or telling stories about the Buddha and his teachings. This is not during the meditation. This is after meditation. Yeah, so the way the routines work for the Vipassana program is that you meditate, I think starting from like 4.30 in the morning until like 7 p.m. And then there's these things called discourses where everyone gathers in a meditation hall and watches videos of lectures by um, S.N. Goenka when he was alive. Mm. So they pre-recorded these. And these are great t- teachings, actually. And so by listening to these talks and connecting them to what I had experienced and to my understanding of neuroscience, I started to see that, you know, and I had also done very intensive retreats at Tushita, a different uh, a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center before this. And I'd also done a retreat at Tosun Lane, which is a Buddhist nunnery. Mm. So I was deeply exposed to Buddhist teachings already. And those time. those meditation sessions, they were also 10, ten days and yeah, similar? but they weren't about silence. I see. So you could, and you could read. Okay. So you could distract yourself from ah, your monkey mind, right? right. Doing other things. Um, so the difference was the third retreat, the Vipassana mm. retreat, was a complete bell of silence mm. and a commitment to not read or write. How many people are in this session? The Vipassana program varies by site. Mm. I think our site had like 150, 160 people. Holy crap. Some sites have 300 people. And it's just dead capacity. silent. I mean, India these, yeah. is a very popular ah. um, program, organization. In the U.S., the retreat centers are slightly smaller. Okay. Um, like the one in Delaware, I did decided to to try that one. Um, one in Delaware. Yeah, there's in Claymont, in Del- Delaware. Claymont. Yeah, they they took over an old orphanage and built it out as a meditation center, and that I think the capacity there is like eighty people. Okay. So like forty men, forty women, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Do you think ten day was too long, or like do you think it could have been shorter? I mean, it depends on the person. Like, Goenka designed it for 10 days because that's the minimal amount of time it takes to have these breakthrough insights. Okay. Because, like, basically you're wrestling with yourself Yeah. over, like, the first eight or nine days. And then the ninth or tenth day, most people got to a sense of, like, self-acceptance and peace. Okay. Right? And so people actually go back and do longer retreats. So they have like a 20-day version, a 30-day version. Now, this has to do then with economics. Most people don't have the luxury of not working for 20, 30 days. So it's a lot harder to take a month off to do those programs. So after those 10 days, 20 days, or 30 days, do they revert back to themselves or are they a changed person? I haven't done a study, Uh so I don't know the data. I don't think they collect data on what happens post-retreats okay. either. I think for a lot of people, there is some regression. Okay. Right? But hopefully, um, the brain changes that take place when you're doing a 10-day retreat, some of it sticks with you for the rest of your life, hopefully. Okay. And I've I done some meditation with, like, Headspace and Calm or in some other, other meditating formats. But what are your thoughts on those? 
popular meditation apps and and just things that that are out there the information that's out there sure i mean there's a lot of information that's out there there's a lot of noise and i think um, those apps are good for people who just want an introduction to meditation and don't really want a big commitment and they're not a big financial commitment most of them have freemium models Mm -hmm. where you can use them for some amount of time without ever paying so i think those are a good like first exposure but i think if people want a deeper understanding of how to meditate and want to be like have their misconceptions cleared then it's helpful to look at the science of meditation look at the research behind it and that that was my journey right i was frustrated and i'm asian american so there's a lot of misconceptions about asian culture in america period right and there's what you call fortune cookie buddhism okay you know white people have some conception of what buddhism is that has nothing to do with how buddhism is actually practiced in asia right and so i think a lot of the meditation stuff here is almost like fortune cookie meditation even right people have these preconceived notions that meditation is about clearing your mind of no thought when that's not what the science reviews, right? And so people kind of fetishize even and exoticize like Eastern philosophies in such a way that they make it so mystical that it's unattainable, Mm. right? So I think a lot of Americans have this notion of meditation as being completely impossible for them. And, And that needs to be clarified what's really happening is that everyone has this default mode network and if you don't train it you know your autopilot that's what it is it's your autopilot mode um it's probably going to spend most of the time in brain 1.0 or brain 2.0 how much percentage do you think is on 1.0 versus 2.0 for average american it's hard to say it depends on the person Mm. their background their socioeconomics and their personality Mm. but i wouldn't be surprised if it's 99 percent of the time well Right? I mean, there are moments when we get into brain 3.0. Right. But most of the time, the monkey mind is still obsessing and telling stories in brain 1.0 or brain 2.0. Right. right? You're either angry at something or um, resentful of something. Or in 2.0, you're planning how do you buy your next car, your mm. next house, your promotion, things like that. And it's, it's really like this self-centered, like, how do I get what I want? Mm. How do I control the situation so that it goes the way I want it to go? Okay. Right? So the corporate world, world most of the time is in brain 2.0, right? Uh, even nonprofits, a lot of nonprofits spend a lot of time raising money in brain 2.0 or burned out in brain 1.0, okay. right? So there may be intentions that we have in brain 3.0 that guide us into certain um, types of work that we do where we have a sense of purpose, but on a day-to-day basis, those environments are often swept up in brain 1.0 and brain 2.0. I see. And even like with schools, right? A lot of people become teachers because they want to help students learn. Mm -hmm. But the day-to-day school environment puts them in brain 1.0 or brain 2.0. Okay. Right? And so the work that I do a lot of times is helping organizations understand the impact of how systems are designed on the brain and the fact that you're triggering people to be in brain 1.0 and brain 2.0. And they have to have the capacity to bring themselves into brain 3.0. But what about creating and designing systems that naturally trigger people to activate Brain 3.0. In the organization? In the organization. How would you do that? Um, well, that's the next phase of the work, is to, instead of just teaching individuals how to hack their mind and be in Brain 3.0, is to work with organizations to do this system-wide, right? So we've already been training superintendents in uh, Burlington County, New Jersey, 
on the framework and they are interested in exploring how do they share this with their staff and can they redesign a learning environment to put students into Plan 3.0. Like, so, do you have an example of uh, something that could be implemented? Right now, it's still early stage, so mm. we have these two-day trainings to help people understand Brain 3.0 and different aspects of it as they um, go about their day, mm. right? And then to have a working group think through how do you then design a learning environment so that the things that may put people into Brain 1.0 or Brain 2.0, we can design it in a way that it can help them be in Brain 3.0. So it takes time. There's no easy answers. And every person is slightly different. So something that doesn't trigger me into Brain 1.0 might trigger you in Brain 1.0 because you have some trauma around it. So when it comes up, your associations with a certain word is negative. But for me, it's positive, right? And and like something very simple is like sports, for instance. Like if people grew up in Philadelphia, they may love the Eagles. Mm. If they grow up in Dallas, they may hate the Eagles, okay. right? So that's some something there. But like being attuned to the the biofeedback mechanisms, right, is the first part. Mm. So what we teach people to do is to notice when they're in Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0, and as a team, support each other to be in Brain 3.0 mm. by creating a safe space to be vulnerable and talk about the triggers that bring us into Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0. So just having that space can allow people to then not have to wear a mask, right? And by being able to take the mask off, we can be in Brain 3.0. Um, okay. And that's not the easiest thing to do among teams. Like the biggest trend now, um, Google did a study on what helps teams outperform. And the teams that outperform have what they call safe psycholo- uh, safe psychological space. Okay. Where the team can be honest with each other yeah. and give each other feedback and they don't get shamed or they don't get put down by sharing negative news. Got right? it. Teams in which you can't actually say something because it will be perceived as threatening or people will beat you down <laughs> for saying something, they don't communicate and those teams don't perform as well. I see. Well, do you have any current insights into your industry? So it depends how we define my industry, mm. right? So I think broadly speaking, I'm in the training and um, professional personal development space. Mm. And I would say that I think a lot of people come into the space with noble aspirations, but they can't change the system because they're part of the system, right? Because there's a lot of these incentives that put people in Brain 2.0. And so you're training Brain 2.0, you're developing Brain 2.0, and people in Brain 2.0, they're lost in the maze. They can't actually see the maze and change the maze. Whereas my goal is to actually bring the leadership of a company and the staff or a school and its organization, the teachers, the students, into Brain 3.0 so they can actually see the game that they put together, right, and how it's rigged to put people in Brain 1.0 or Brain 2.0 and start to change the system and make the system more inclusive so that people of all backgrounds, whether they're male or female, cisgender, transgender, whether they are coming from different ethnic backgrounds, different skin colors, that everyone can be in Brain 3.0 and contribute their best performance. Mm. And I think that's a challenge because many of our legacy systems, right, may privilege some groups over others, right? A lot of the systems enable some people to be in Brain 2.0 and Brain 3.0 and put others in Brain 1.0. And people are cognitively impaired in Brain 1.0, mm. right? So 
part of the work I do on social justice is to help groups that usually don't have access to things like Common Clarity. We're usually in situations that put them in Bring 1.0, right? So they don't get to develop Bring 3.0 as much, mm. like to give them access to this training so that they have tools where they can start to carve out a path for themselves in Bring 3.0. I see. What's your biggest pain point in implementing this with your clients? Sure. I would say this is a long-term um, process. Mm. There's no overnight path to Brain 3.0. And so I think people get frustrated that the change doesn't happen right away. And because they've hardwired so many networks in Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0, it takes a long time to get into Brain 3.0, yeah. right? And so I don't know if that's like a pain point, but that's basically that there's no magic formula. There's no like instant way to be in Brain 3.0, right? We may be able to prime Brain 3.0, bring people there um, for short periods of time, mm. and then inevitably something will trigger them and they'll go back to Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0. And then they have to build a habit to be in Brain 3.0. They need a support system. They need an environment that has a commitment to being in Brain 3.0. And so what we see is when individuals come, they become change agents and they love this. They have a much harder time um, advocating to the system to uh. move into Brain 3.0. And for that to happen, like we basically have to access decision makers, people who have the authority to do investments and, and training and time to help people understand Brain 3.0 and actually put in the time to, to activate Brain 3.0. And so this is a long-term type of process. Right. And so in many organizations, people are okay with Brain 2.0. Mm. Brain 2.0 is what we've had in status quo. Right. And they don't see why they should shift into Brain 3.0 right. unless they have a conversation with me. Okay. And it's not possible for me to have this conversation with everybody, mm. right? And so... So that's one of the challenges is that it is not a immediate gratification type of mm. like sales problem, right? It, this is a long-term solution or long-term change management system. And when companies or decision makers are in Brain 2.0, they don't value it. And so we have much more success and traction with people who understand the problems of Brain 2.0 and they're already looking for a way to evolve beyond Brain 2.0. Is there anyone else that that you follow or that you like to reference that teaches the Brain 3.0 concept? Not really. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who describe it or allude to the same concept, mm -hmm. but they haven't like captured it using neuroscience in the same way. Mm -hmm. A lot of the touchy-feely programs are all talking about Brain 3.0, mm -hmm. but it's not actually putting it together in a very tangible way. Okay. Right. And so, and a lot of spiritual organizations are talking about being in Brain 3.0, but they, again, don't use neuroscience to describe it. Right. So I think it's it's can be challenging because I'm bringing this and translating it into a secular space, into business, mm. without using religious terminology. Mm. I just use neuroscience to explain the benefits of why people should activate these networks in the brain and not def um, default to using spiritual ways to motivate people. Right, because in secular spaces like schools and companies, like, you know, that type of language is awkward. Right. Right. And so it's it's an interesting way of taking something that's been in one space for thousands of years right. and translating it into another space using neuroscience. 
And it works when we have trainings and when we do projects with companies, like the adoption is immediate because people can see the benefits right away and it gives them this terminology, this vocabulary to describe things that used to only be talked about at church or synagogue or temple. Okay. And now you can actually talk about these things using neuroscience. I see. Do you have any announcements you want to make? Yeah. So I am in a movie called The Portal about meditation as a portal for transforming trauma. And it's made by people in Australia. Okay. Um, and they can go to the website entertheportal.com to see showtimes and look for a screening near them. Okay, great. And you also have a book. Uh, yeah, I have a book called Calm Clarity, How Do You Science to Rewire Your Brain for Greater Wisdom, Fulfillment, and Joy, which was one of Fast Company's best books of 2018. Okay. How long did it take you to write that book? Two years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's a deep, introspective journey. Okay. What's the one question that you keep getting asked from your clients? Mm, I think, I don't know if it's the one question I keep getting asked, but people often ask me, is there a brain 4.0? Oh, that's a good question, actually. And and I tell people, based on, like, like this structure that I use was based on the actual like neurobiology of mm-hmm. the brain. And as far as I understand, there is no other structure called brain 4.0. Ah. Um, but what they're talking to about is more of a mental concept yeah. of when you're enlightened, are you beyond brain 3.0? Okay. Like, like, is it beyond the brain? And, and I tell people, you know, people haven't really been able to measure what enlightenment looks like in the brain because we don't know if anyone is actually enlightened. Okay. Right? Nobody who's enlightened has claimed to say, hey, look at my brain. Right? Okay. <laughs> and we haven't seen, like, consistent patterns across people who might claim that they are enlightened. So, but my understanding is that if you're able to spend more and more time in brain 3.0, mm-hmm. right, so that you're able to calm and regulate brain 1.0 and brain 2.0, that, that that's what people mean when they say brain 4.0. Mm-hmm. Then you get to a point where you no longer really experience a lot of brain 1.0 and brain 2.0. And so to spend time in brain 3.0, you know, obviously you can't be at 3.0 100% of the time. So what's a percentage that's a, a good number for you to be like, hey, I'm at brain 3.0 at this amount of percentage, and that's good? Sure. I would say it kind of depends on your situation mm-hmm. and the environment you're in. For instance, if you live in a war zone mm-hmm. versus you live in a, a peaceful country, mm-hmm. right? And so your fight-or-flight system should turn on whenever you're in physical danger. Mm-hmm. It should alert you even when you're in in danger socially where you know even though these people are not going to kill you mm-hmm. but they have malicious intentions towards you huh. right and so depending on your circumstances you want brain 1.0 to tell you when you're in physical emotional or psychological danger but what you don't want is for that to self-activate and the stories to keep turning and going going when you're not actually in danger i see right or when there's nothing more you can do about to, to remove yourself from danger, you actually want to go into Brain 3.0 so you can process that information and remove yourself from danger more effectively. I see. Right? And same thing with Brain 2.0. If you have goals, if you have deadlines, if there's tasks that actually need to get done when you're running a company, there's a good amount of time you should spend in Brain 2.0. Like when you're doing um, research on procurement, right? You want to find the best deal you can get. 
and there's a part of that time you should be in Bling 2.0 to do a little bit of maximization, right? And so the, then the question is, can you bring yourself back into Bling 3.0 when it's good enough, uh. right? Instead of just being stuck in that process over and over or of more, 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 right? When you're binge watching, can you actually know when it's time to stop in what binge watching, okay. right? <laughs> Things like that. And so I would say, Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0 are biological facts. Mm. They're not bad for you if you've learned how to regulate them and you can turn them off once they've told you what they need to tell you. Okay. Right? And so I would say if you're not in a place where the danger is constant, then you probably shouldn't be in Brain 1.0 more than 10% or 5% of the time. Okay. If you live in a war zone where there are a lot of things that are dangerous, right, you may have to hear from brain 1.0 more and more, but mm. then you have to calm the trigger. Okay. You have to calm yourself. And then for brain 2.0, if you're in a place like investment banking or private equity where there's these constant deadlines mm. and big projects and things like that, you may spend a lot more time in brain 2.0 than the average person. However, you should not spend 99% of your time in brain 2.0. Okay. You gotta learn to turn it off too. So I would say you probably should not try to spend more than half your time in brain 2.0 unless like like it's a very short-term project right you should be able to take yourself out of it right so if you're talking about a, a year versus like a week some weeks you have to be in brain 2.0 because oh. that's where the project is i see but over the course of a year it's better if you're not spending more than 50 percent of your year in brain 2.0 okay right because you want it, your body needs to recover you need to spend at least half your time in brain 3.0 so you can see a bigger picture you can look at the strategy, you can revise the strategy. I mean, this is part of the reason why people like Bill Gates think he takes like two months off every year to just think. So oh. he can be in Brain 3.0 and, and look at like how his company is doing, if he wants to pivot in any particular way. Right. Right. And so not everyone can do that. Mm. However, I would think just from a month to month basis, you want to be able to spend at least half the month in Brain 3.0 um, so you actually enjoy your life. Oh. And I'm guessing that's uh, less stressful for you. I wouldn't say it's less stressful in the sense that the things that cause stress mm. are as present in your life as ever. Okay. You know, it's not like the bills go away. It's not like, you know, everything that causes stress in your life suddenly go away. Mm. The thing is, you're facing it differently. Ah. If you're not in brain 1.0 or brain 2.0, creating drama that exacerbates the stress, learning to let things go, learning to choose your battles you're learning to even transform the stress so you see the positive in it your body's not having the same inflammatory response ah okay well do you have a favorite resource that you like to use for reference or learning Mm, i mean i just love the library like the free library of philadelphia Mm. whatever books come out on neuroscience or some topic on positive psychology they often have that book so i don't actually have to buy it Mm. so i'm constantly i mean even my book calm clarity um, a lot of the research was done using the free library okay who inspires you i would say i would i have a collage of people Mm. who inspire me it's like a mix of uh, different like types of people So I guess on the social justice side, it's the work of Mandela, Gandhi, Martin Luther King. On the, you know, business side, people like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and I would say 
you know, social, the whole like social entrepreneurship movement, mm. not necessarily a particular social entrepreneur, but just the idea that you can have a triple bottom line, that not all profits are created equal. So I think that movement itself inspires me. Com Clarity is structured as a social enterprise. We have a nonprofit arm where we do most of the social impact work. And then to try to generate a sustainable, sustainable revenue stream, we have a benefit corporation that holds the intellectual property and that also does corporate training. Okay. Any favorite books? Yeah. So one of my favorite books is Robert Sapolsky's Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And okay. It explains like, the difference of the stress response in animals versus humans and how humans, because of our brains, because brain 1.0, brain 2.0, and the, how we can create these stories, we extend the amount of time we experience stress. Oh, okay. Any interesting things we should know about you? I'm a certified yoga teacher, but I don't teach yoga. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's the one skill that you want to work on next year? Well, I think being someone from the inner city, I've had a hard time, I think, connecting with the donation process, like the fundraising process, mm. it always feels weird to me because I grew up on welfare to like ask people for money. Mm-hmm. There's like just a lot of baggage around that. But I think like I also run another nonprofit called the Collective Success Network, and we formed that to help uh, first generation college students uh, connect with professionals for mentorship, career advice. And the key is to make sure more first generation college students have the social capital they need to enter careers after they graduate. Right. And so we have to really fundraise so that that takes off. We've been able to manage, because it's a volunteer-run organization, to manage that with almost like no budget. We've raised $20,000 consistently for two, three years, and um, that's enough to cover all the programming costs, but it doesn't cover staff. And when you have a lot of volunteers, people turn over, people burn out. And so we really have to raise at least like $125,000 to hire someone to keep this program going. And so one of my goals is to learn how to be a better fundraiser. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Where can people find out more information about you? Uh, They can go to comclarity.org to learn more about the company, to read my bio, they can read my book, they can get it on Amazon, mm. um, and they can also see the portal. Okay. Um, and they can go to the website, entertheportal.com, to see show times and look for a screening near them. All right, sounds good. Thank you for your time. Thank you. All right.